0: on Podcast Network
1: it ain't nothing but a podcast movie talking time it ain't nothing but a podcast Sunday night it ain't nothing but a podcast and i'm here with friends of mine connor christine and sam hey everybody welcome back to butter with that a movie podcast where some friends from philly get together to talk about all things movies and if you've been listening you know that we have been going through a bit of a biopic month uh our real versus real theme where we have discussed some biopics. They're, uh, syncing with the reality of their subjects uh, let's say and uh and all sorts of other things and we've had a great time doing it and we have a real doozy to close us out uh, on that theme this week but before we get to it and uh, to give myself some distance from this movie uh for a little bit since uh, it's been a weird month uh i uh, wanted to see what everybody has been watching if anybody has anything to report on or if anything's been on your minds
0: well i had covid <laughs> It was pretty mild, but that gave me the time to uh, sit down and enjoy some things on my television that I haven't quite had the time for. So I beat the new God of War game, started a couple new games. I also watched some things, including Krampus, uh, which has been on my list for a while. A uh, pretty fun movie, very wild. Uh, appreciate the more imaginative elements of it, as opposed to the kind of more family dynamics that kind of yeah, are kind of hit or miss. But it was a great jack-in-the-box man that is just wonderful so i think krampus is worth it it's on peacock it's like only like an hour barely an hour 30 i think so krampus was fun uh have you guys seen krampus
1: yeah i have i agree with all of that it's a little bit of a messy script but uh some really great creature effects and uh and practical effects
0: um and then i watched, binged the first seven episodes of andor yesterday the new star wars show uh, that i heard was good but <clears throat> was kind of waiting until it was all out and was getting around to some other stuff so probably finished that up this week so it was nice to see a movie i've been meaning to and then binge a show that i've been wanting to watch so that that's i'm feeling good now
2: i had a really strange weekend where i watched this movie that we're going to be talking about and then also uh don't worry darling and my policeman um <laughs> I, <laughs> harry styles they i i don't know I kind of sat on my couch for a cute, a total of maybe like twelve hours. It felt like, Um, and I weirdly enjoyed them all. I know that's like maybe a little controversial, but I I I would recommend seeing. I can't believe I'm even going to say this: the movie that we're talking about tonight. But yeah, you know, (laughs) maybe not all together, but I enjoyed
3: all three.
1: Nice, and Christine.
3: I've uh, watched only Christmas movies, shitty Christmas movies, but I would say in order of best to worst, I've watched three so far. Best has been Freddie Prince Jr.'s new Christmas movie, Christmas with You. Second best would be, uh, fuck, I already forgot. I'll <laughs> must come be back great. to that one. Third was the worst, which is Christmas Castle or Christmas in a Castle, whatever. It's Brooke Shields and the guy from Carrie Elwes or Elwes, the guy from mm-hmm. Princess Bride. It's absolute garbage. It's horrible. <laughs> um, wouldn't recommend it. I've realized the key is that the two characters at least need some chemistry. The plot could be absolutely inane, but as long as the two main characters have some desire to be existing in the universe that the movie creates, it's good for me. But Christmas in a castle, Christmas with a castle, horrible. The Is there topic. somebody
0: you think was really trying, or was there a fault on one side, or just both of them? Or?
3: Brooke was trying. She's just not a pleasure to watch. <laughs> And Carrie Elwes was also not a pleasure to watch and also was clearly not wanting to be in this movie. Uh, But I was like, dude, your career is nothing anyways. Don't feel like it's something it's not, you know, that you're being brought down by this movie. I can't believe I can't remember the second one, which I clearly enjoy. (laughs) They all get muddled in my brain.
1: Well, speaking of muddled brains, uh, it's been uh, a weird month prepping for this episode, and one that I've been looking forward to with kind of tented fingers, wondering uh, what the reception is going to be among my co-hosts. So this is going to be a pretty interesting conclusion for real versus real, our biopic theme. And this week, we are talking about the 2022 film uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. It's uh, uh it's depending upon whom you ask in Elvis biopic, uh, but might not be the Elvis biopic that uh, one would imagine. It, for those who haven't seen it, is in essence, uh, the morphine fueled dying fever dream of Colonel Tom Parker, who was the manager of Elvis for uh, quite a few many decades, and it kind of recounts Elvis's rise and fall through the eyes of Parker. Uh, in some pretty strange and uh, pretty creative ways, I suppose, is one way to put it. Uh, Maybe some historically incomplete ways, which we'll cover later. But this is, uh, again, yeah, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. It stars Austin Butler as Elvis Presley. uh, Danny DeVito as the Penguin. Uh, Shit, I'm sorry. It's Tom Hanks. It's Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker. That's an easy mistake to make. Uh, And a handful of other actors who turned in some interesting performances throughout. It was a movie that uh, kind of, Captured my attention in ways that I didn't expect throughout this past year, and uh, one that I have seen more than any other movie that I've seen this year, which is a strange place to be in. But I do know that for all of my co-hosts, it was their first time seeing this. So what was your what was your experience with this movie in, uh, in terms of shorthand, before we get into the uh, fact versus fiction, our real versus real portion of this, from its initial marketing to your first watch?
3: I'll say that this was my second time putting it on. (laughs) I did put it on uh, about two months ago and watched the first 25 minutes and it was horrified and thought I would never do this ever again. And of course you bring it to the podcast. So I must for the sake of podding
1: and friendship.
3: And uh, are we giving our assessments or are we just saying our seeing relationship with it?
1: I suppose yeah just sort of like a, an introductory summary of uh what you what you expected and what you got.
3: Okay, uh I expected to be horrified the entire movie as I was in the first 20 minutes. Uh but I'll say I still didn't like it, but I really actually enjoyed Austin Butler's performance. I will say that he is definitely a lot of fun to watch. And that's all I'll say. I still am never going to watch this movie ever again.
1: But yeah great first take a great uh slightly icy but uh insightful first take. how about uh connor or sam
2: i also will say that this was my second time putting it on first time i was on the plane to california i think i got i don't even think i got 10 minutes in and i had to shut it off i was like absolutely (laughs) not it was like the tom hanks of it all and yeah and christina everything you just said uh austin butler was in a, a different movie. A phenomenal job. I could watch him play Elvis for a longer time. But I don't want to. I could, but I don't want to.
1: <laughs> you might get the chance. There's that uh, storied four-hour cut.
2: <laughs> Fuck, I forgot. Yeah.
1: Also, to, for perspective, this movie is 159 minutes long. So, so, in
0: our group thread, I saw in the texting that... Two of my co-hosts attempted to watch it and then had to stop. So I was uh, not looking forward to watching it. I've heard mixed things. Some people like it. Some people don't like it. Everybody seems to hate Tom Hanks. I was really not looking forward to watching it. Uh, This was actually the reason why we're doing our biopic month, was because Dave wanted needed, I guess, to talk (laughs) about Elvis. So it was interesting going from... Catch Me If You Can, very different Tom Hanks performance and Carl Handratty to Colonel Tom Parker. Uh, But overall, I didn't hate it. There were were actually large parts of the movie that I really enjoyed Um, when the movie didn't get in its way and just let Austin Butler do his thing. um, I think Baz Luhrmann was actually, I think, in a lot of ways, a good choice to direct an Elvis story he made a lot of mistakes in his approach, but I think the idea of like of the showmanship of Elvis and what that meant to society. Um, I I think that there's a lot of strengths with this movie and a lot of problems and weaknesses and bizarre choices that by the end of it, it didn't feel like I was being held hostage anymore, but that I was kind of, you know, enjoying the ride Uh, and the craziness like added to the fun. Like the bad parts became funny in the end. Is that because I sat there for almost three hours and was looking at some bright spots? I'm not sure. But overall, I got to give a recommend to Elvis. I think it does a decent job. of If you're going to do somebody's whole Dewey Cox style whole life, <laughs> start to finish, stem to stern, I think this does a pretty decent job of getting you on his emotional journey with a lot of really bizarre choices.
2: I do think there's a Stockholm syndrome element to it all. You're just, yes. yeah, you're stuck there for so long that by the end you're like, you know, it's okay.
1: I agree. A lot of, a lot of what's been said. I, uh, I remember first seeing the trailer for this in theaters with a, an audience also seeing it for the first time, I presume. And this trailer comes on and gradually the audience realizes that this is Baz, a trailer for Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. And there was a simultaneous groan from everyone in the theater. And then everyone also burst out laughing because they realized that we all simultaneously groaned together as an audience, first getting a glimpse at what this idea was. And then I I wrote it off and thought to myself, well, what a preposterous idea. I started seeing some of the early reviews, and there started being a lot of trading in the words like um, unhinged and deranged which really caught my attention. My housemate then went to see it based on uh, that curiosity also, and came home insisting that I should go see it, because it was unlike anything that they had seen, including other Baz Luhrmann films. Uh, I did go to go see it, and uh, like two of the three of you, uh, did have the experience of having to go and start from scratch again, because at the theater, I was at the uh, AMC on Broad, which is formerly The Pearl, Not a great theater. Uh, There was a fire alarm. So uh, the film stopped halfway through on this frozen image with all these uh, flashing lights and sirens, which I will post on our Instagram page because it's just such a surreal image to to take in. So I left the theater um, confused. I made halfway through the film and thought it was bizarre, but not necessarily captivating in any kind of rewarding way. Then came home and after a few days still had the itch and wanted to see it through. So uh, eventually convinced my housemates uh, to pitch in to buy it, which we did. And then I finished the film and I found that uh, when the film gets toward its like latter half, maybe the last like fifty minutes of this pretty long movie, uh, it suddenly becomes a different movie. Or, or perhaps more accurately, uh, this is like a film that if it were wholly incompetent, I would have written off out of hand. But there are glimpses of what I think is a pretty good movie underneath this layering of insanity. So uh, I, I've been fascinated by it in a lot of ways. Uh, and I'm uh, looking forward to dissecting that a little bit with you guys. So if anybody has any thoughts to kick us off before we, again, before we get to the real versus real truth versus fiction portion of this episode, just general impressions. What, what was, what was your journey with this doozy of a picture?
2: I feel like I need to physically fight Tom Hanks. I never thought <laughs> I would ever feel that, say that. I mean, I fucking picked that thing you do for my underrated movie pick. I love Tom Hanks. What the fuck was this? Who who greenlit this? As, as soon as the movie starts, he's like, I'm a snowman. The snow is money or whatever. I, I couldn't, I couldn't fucking believe it. I still can't.
3: I think Tom Hanks is just given the green light to do whatever the fuck he wants because he's so connected and beloved. And I think this is an issue where he's like, yeah, I want to do like, it's like a terminal situation. He's like, I want to play this idiosyncratic character and do a weird accent. Let me do it. And everyone's like, of course Tom. Do whatever you want.
0: (laughs) And this is the result. To the movie's credit, with Colonel Tom Parker, it does, I feel like, accurately depict how he just robbed Elvis of so much of his life, of his money, of his career. So while every choice about performing that role was probably done poorly, I think at least the vibe and the tone and the approach that, i think that this dave as you mentioned it's kind of from colonel parker's perspective his memory for like half of it or a little more
1: he's our narrator yeah yeah
0: he's he's our narrator and so that's an interesting angle to put the elvis story through uh and i'm at least happy that out of this bizarre performance where tom hanks is in this fat suit and he's running around like the penguin from batman (laughs) Uh, that at least the tone of like, oh, he is crooked. He did, you know, rank Elvis over the coals of his career and held him back in many ways and helped assisted his death at the age of 42. So at least the movie didn't like shy away from that part of the story, which uh, from my understanding is not always the case when people talk about Elvis's life.
3: I think you're right. That is interesting to think about like this character who's basically exploiting Elvis and Tom Hanks as this character is like trying to like hijack and derail this movie and then and then I think we've all agreed upon by the end which I totally agree by the end there is a captivating story happening and I think some of the best scenes happen at the end when like the movie pauses and like sits on a like It like like, literally
1: slows down
3: Yeah yeah. Some slow-mo is a little rough But
1: there are some I I mean that as a compliment, yeah
3: Scenes that actually let the characters do something As opposed to cut, 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 cut cut, Or as opposed to Tom Hanks' character kind of glomming on To every single scene With his like weird narration And just like peekaboo voyeurism It's so weird Like what's going on? (laughs) But Connor, I think you, but I think your point is really interesting to think about how that character is functioning, not only in kind of the, this was a true character in Elvis's life, but also in like audience's relationship to this story <laughs> and the
1: threats <laughs> that appear in
3: the shape of Tom
1: Hanks. And a great observation of this like peekaboo voyeurism every once in a while he just steps back in as like the dying colonel tom parker to remind you hey wait a minute this isn't elvis's movie i'm telling the story here in some bizarre ways there's uh the moment when elvis is about to hit the road and his mother is skeptical about it which is a whole relationship we'll get into when we get to butler but um in the midst of this like well i suppose either tender or strange scene depending on who you ask I'll, i'll side with the latter it just suddenly cuts all together from this moment it's established and given us breathing room with for the elderly Parker to like lean into the camera. When after she says, like, don't worry, mama, nothing's ever going to get between you and me. Parker just it's strange. Elderly Tom Hanks, like prosthetic face, just flies at the camera and just offers one a bet before we totally shift gears. And I I agree. I think that the part is functionally appropriate and interesting as a way of framing this, especially as we'll get to uh, in my favorite interpretation of this movie at the end. But Tom Hanks is so oddly cast. I mean, Tom Hanks is known for being Tom Hanks and all the movies he's in. He's like, you know, the kind of like almost fatherly uncle figure. He's Hollywood's like familial Tom Hanks. He's just like, you know. He's always Tom Hanks. So when he's obscured by not only so many odd prosthetics, but this this bizarre like pseudo-Dutch or a northern European accent, which actually isn't in line with Colonel Tom Parker's actual accent. It was more like an imitation of a southern affect. It's so jarring and really really shifts your attention away from the parts of this movie that do work.
2: And also, you know, the the horrific fat suit in prosthetics that Tom Hanks is wearing. I I get on this bandwagon, this soapbox all the time. If you want a fat character, hire a fat actor. Don't put a thin actor in a fat suit. However, um, that is true the entire time with Colonel Parker and Tom Hanks. But, and I think that this is actually speaking to Connor and Christine, your point from how, like, the, the juxtaposition of Colonel Parker with like the kind of like really like sweet and tender like last 15 minutes when they finally do show elvis towards the end of his life at austin butler as elvis they also have him in prosthetics and a fat suit but it's so well done it's so fucking like classy and then it just Mm. slowly fades into the real elvis i was like That is one of the most respectful ways I've ever seen that done. And I was like, I was speechless by that point because it was fucking beautiful, actually.
1: That's an interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I do love that ending and we'll get to that as well. Yeah, I mean, that replication like, of
3: uh, Unchained Melody. I mean, that footage always gets me. Like, if I want to, like, a good cry or whatever, I'll just, like, YouTube Elvis Unchained Melody. Like, like final concert, whatever. And that always gives me a good cry. But the way that they did that so transition good, yeah. uh, between, El- uh, like, Austin Butler, oh. Elvis, and then the real footage, Elvis. Did. yeah. As you said, Dave, we'll probably get into that. But, yeah, beautiful moment.
1: Unless anybody has any other thoughts on Hanks, we that can pivot us into Austin Butler.
3: Don't let um, him hijack our podcast discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we'll spend an hour just talking about Tom Hanks. All
1: right, It was now my gonna, yeah, show yeah. all along. Now we're going to talk about Austin Butler. Wanna bit? <laughs> so let's get to Butler. I mean, uh, this is... Uh, This is the second movie I've seen him in after uh, his brief role in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which even then uh, playing, you know, uh, Tex of the uh, the Manson family pretty menacingly and uh, with a different look, you know, like longer hair and a little scruffier. Seeing his face for the first time was just sort of like, ooh, who are you? And um, that honestly is carried over here. But I mean, to such an insane degree. He really earns this this spotlight, in my opinion. I thought it was one of the better performances I've seen this year and still kind of think so. And uh, he is apparently uh, like a 16th cousin second removed from the actual Presley family. So I'm told there is also... Um, his mother having passed away, uh, Austin Butler, the actor, his mother having passed away at the age uh, his age of 23, uh, which actually perfectly coincides with uh, Elvis's own history. He auditioned for the role, and it was going to go to Miles Teller, who I think got a role in a different film that Austin Butler was going to get. So they kind of did a switcheroo there, which perhaps is to both of their uh, benefit. I would I would think, but uh, he auditioned for the part by performing Unchained Melody and submitting that footage to Lerman. And that's really how he got the bump into this role. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some nominations for this role. It's pretty spellbinding, really magnetic. And on top of that, for at least the first two-thirds of the film, the performances that we see and the voice that we hear is Butler actually performing those songs. Uh, it's not until the latter half of the film, I think the last third of the film, it's last act, that we start. Well, I'd say it's five acts, but the last let's say the last act. Uh, that we uh, start getting uh, Elvis's actual voice piped in. So he actually performed uh, and and vocalized and recorded all of these songs as well, which are available via the soundtrack. Heck of a performance, in my opinion. What do you guys think?
0: He's the reason why you make the movie, I feel like. Why you watch the movie, <laughs> well, well, I'll tell people to like watch the movie, is um, his performance. And I think as somebody who's... I didn't even realize he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but he was great in that too. As like a relative newcomer, it seems. This is I think I hope a star-making turn for him. Uh his commitment even to all the dancing, the physicality, the singing, on top of his, I think, like dramatic chops of like, you know, interacting pretty emotionally intense scenes throughout the movie and complex relationships that Elvis navigates. Um, I think top to bottom he did. A phenomenal job and uh, you know i think the scene at the end with him and priscilla um in the limo i think just shows a huge range you know from the fun dancing elvis of the 50s to the dying elvis of the 70s um just you know kudos to doing having to do a whole range of performance on top of singing and dancing of like one of the most famous humans to have ever lived <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I really feel like he was acting in an entirely different movie. He's like a caliber all of its own. I, I like I couldn't believe how like, charismatic and spellbounding he really was. Like obviously he's an attractive dude, but there's something so fucking vulnerable. I'm thinking particularly of after Elvis's mom dies and he's just like weeping in the closet, holding on to her clothes, and you know. There's a part of you that feels like, ooh, by their whole relationship and, and that kind of reaction. But then there's yeah, another part, yeah. And then there's another part of you that's just like, God, I want to protect this kid. Like I I feel bad. And to to pull that off, you know, it takes some serious skill. So I was really impressed with him and fell a little in love with him. I'm not gonna lie. Same. <laughs>
3: Yeah, he's a cutie. I would also say that this movie is so unsubtle and so over the top that I feel like it takes a really strong performance to both lean into the melodrama in a really... It's like he understood the tone of this movie and really worked with the ability to, as Sam, you were saying, show vulnerability, but also show swagger and like but also just like add an extra layer of just soap to it. But at the same time, not let the movie just swallow him whole, you know? And like that, I feel like he was basically set up with a really difficult task. And I and I really thought he was, as everyone said, really magnetic to watch, especially in those. And we were kind of talking about, Uh, Some of the wonderful scenes from Love and Mercy where you get to see the relationship between a singer and a band and that long scene (laughs) at the the end, you know, it's like a little different. But at the same time, you saw the wonderful magnetism that Elvis would have obviously had with his like uh, with his band and with his musicians. and, And I thought Austin Butler really conveyed the love he has for for music and listening to music and like all of that.
1: And so, the, also, this... real, real quick on that note, yeah. As it relates to love and mercy, it's really funny that we're comparing these two back to back because we get all these moments in love and mercy of Brian Wilson, like laboring over creating parts with his musicians collaboratively, while still being instructive and, and driving the melody. And we get a moment in this where Elvis this is like basically doing the same thing, like a, and then a horns, then a a horn. yeah. <laughs> it's, Let's let's not credit uh, Elvis with composing in the same way that we would Brian Wilson. You know? For sure.
3: No, yes. But,
1: but I thought but it, it was, does position it was a, them the same a way. Super yeah.
3: fun scene. And you could really tell, because I mean, yeah, he wasn't writing his material, but at the same time, he was a stellar singer. And you know, and I'm we will get a ton into uh like uh his use and appropriation of you know black music
1: and uh, oh sure will
3: (laughs) for sure but i thought those scenes also conveyed how much he really uh it was energized by like being on stage and i thought austin butler really like all of that shone through in his uh performance
1: yeah i agree in the sense um Especially Sam, as you've said, like, you know, this is he, he's acting in it. In either he's acting in a different movie or he is the one person that transcends this sort of like almost cartoonish characterization of everyone. And that's that's the butler's credit given a script and a film like this, especially the way it's stylized, which I really want to get into, into next. So as far as this film stylization, it's Baz Luhrmann. Bad Lerman is sort of the uh, bursting balloon of glitter that is uh, is, is a director and, uh, you know, a very ruckus and uh, very spectacle-driven presentation. And I think that this movie handles that in uh, both successful ways and some dreadful ways, uh, depending on perhaps which half of the movie we're talking about. What did you guys think about this movie's stylization?
3: I think I was preparing that. I mean— I haven't seen Moulin Rouge in a really long time, but I was obsessed with that movie when I was younger. And that was a, like, I, yeah, I mean, and McGregor, like fucking, that was like an iconic role, but I, maybe if I was to rewatch it, it'd be like, Ooh, so I, but Romeo plus Juliet classics. So I think I was ready going in to be like, okay, yeah, this is a Boslerman take on Elvis. But it was like he out Baz himself <laughs> in like the number of cuts and like set or like, like just it was just too jarring. Uh, and it was a stylization that it, that's like nausea inducing at first.
0: <laughs> it's just it just feels so gratuitous, all of the cutting. And I mean, I guess it's like because we're. Like, this is, we see the old Colonel Parker at the casino, and it's, like, very, you know, the roulette wheel spins or everything, and it's, like, all those cutaways are just so damn distracting from the, like, just give me the meat of Austin Butler doing things in the movie. Don't keep cutting in and out. But I I guess in terms of, like, the stage presentation, like, the framing of most of the movie, I guess works pretty good. It's just, like, there's just all this noise. And I know this actually... The first Baz Luhrmann movie I've ever seen, I realized, oh. as I was like watching it and just like looking up his filmography. It's like, oh, yeah, I've never seen Moulin Rouge. I've never seen Romeo Plus Juliet any of his other movies. So uh know about him. But I guess this was from what I knew, this was everything I expected from Baz Luhrmann. And it was not great.
2: There were definitely some parts where I laughed out loud because of how ridiculous it was.
1: <laughs> Same.
2: It's just like, what the? fuck am I watching and one of those moments actually um oh god I I can't remember exactly when it is but there's the under the music is playing and it's Elvis and then the there's an underscore of Britney Spears is toxic and Mm -hmm. then the Backstreet Boys and I was like what the fuck am I hearing I had to rewind it to make sure I wasn't losing my mind and I was just like I mean I don't mind it i don't mind it but also what
1: a sort of a Lerman thing that we saw a bit with uh, the great gatsby if you've seen that which i wouldn't recommend where there's an infusion of like Avira music and like contemporary music which is all across this movie and some really distracting and frankly yeah jarringly uh distancing ways with precious few exceptions i mean when he's first uh performing um in, in front of a live crowd, and he, you know, he's nervous, and he's doing his whole thing. He's midway through the song, you know, um, and all, all of a sudden, as like everyone's getting into it, there's this like totally like not of era and anachronistic like electric guitar lead that's like, and that's the those, that's one of the few moments where I was just like, oh shit, okay. But yeah, a lot of the uh, a lot of the intrusions of uh, contemporary music set against uh, this era of music, I find to be jarringly disconnected,
3: I feel like there's a world in which this movie could have pulled it off because uh, I, I mean, I guess he was kind of going for especially in the early parts of the movie, he being Lerman, kind of this sort of circus spectacle uh, and everything is just mm-hmm. overblown and and everything is caricature uh, as characters are in a circus. and everything's dizzying and it's fucking wild or whatever. but it just, it couldn't convey that in any interesting way. And I think that the, I think it's kind of fun to get contemporary because I feel like what you're not looking for in this movie is like historic authenticity. And I feel like- Better not. Need, yeah, and I don't need that from a biopic at all. But if it's going to be fun and stylized and incorporate contemporary music, I think it needs to have some sort of, Purpose for doing so. And at least in the first half, the movie just does not have a reason for being <laughs> fundamentally. And yeah.
1: Especially because a lot of the selections, a lot of the modern incorporations are um, you know, people that are uh, artists, artists of color. And it's almost like suggesting that like Elvis's influence has inspired them.
3: I feel like throughout, I think the a fundamental problem with this movie. Is in in attempts to sort of acknowledge, like basically material that Elvis took, stole, whatever, like definitely from black musicians. It still side, it still manages to sideline them and turn Elvis into sort of this like innocent uh, savior or like just weird. It's just a weird characterization of Elvis as like always kind of this like victim but also innocent but also just like a cha- a change maker i don't know it's it's a really weird <laughs> positioning of him in this story uh so yeah that's that's fucking bizarre but as far as also just like yeah trying the style stylization I, I was just too much uh at first
1: one of the first i mean right away this movie right out of the gate is Presents its early stylization. Like I said, I do think it slows down as things go on, but for at least the first like hour and twenty minutes of this movie, we are treated to like so many cuts per second that like it almost struggles to keep up with the frame rate, and it's just too much. Uh, that the the really big first thing that caught my attention was uh when we're treated to Colonel Tom Parker's backstory, and he's explaining the snow job that he is the snowman, and he's looking for a showman to put on his snow job which is basically uh bilking people out of money by presenting them with something that that gives them feelings that they're not sure that they should be feeling put a pin in that. But in this introduction, there's a scene where it just zooms in from the entry of a carnival tent to Tom Hanks conducting CGI dancing chickens, <laughs> all dancing in synchronization. And that's like the first like three minutes of the movie, which is when I was like, this is going to be exhausting. <laughs>
3: The only explanation I can have for this is that Tom Hanks has like an understood contract that he must appear in a certain percentage of a movie in order to be in it.
1: I'll bet that's true.
3: But Oz Lerman is like, what the fuck do I do with this character for the allotted amount of time? I have to have Tom Hanks on the screen. And then you get this character conducting chickens in a circus what? scene like that's the only
0: thing i could think of like but what, he's the snowman what were people thinking the snowman,
3: <laughs> sure
0: fine <laughs> i mean this, this is a christmas movie it opens with a christmas card zooming in on tom hanks's face as we go back in time and why
2: did elvis's face in that look so terrible I don't it looks
0: so weird right? right
2: yeah what the hell was that i i can't hear snow job anymore
1: I can't <laughs> you're going to hear it a couple of times when we get to the end of the episode. Yeah. This movie is, uh, Oh, as, as someone I th- pointed out early on, this is a movie that gets in its own way, especially as far as Lerman's like hyper stylization, at least, uh, on the surface, I think in the end, uh, it actually serves some interesting purposes, which, uh, again, I'll get to, uh, as we conclude the episode, but was there anything in particular though that did work? Contrary to maybe the stylization or, or or moments where like, for example, for me, this felt like an inversion of 1917 where the entire time it is this w- t- very like established and labored one shot versus this where it is such a concussive editing process of like maybe like two or three second shots on average for about for, like an hour and a half. That when it does finally slow down again toward the latter half of this movie and things start to rest or we're given time to really soak in some of the performance scenes, uh, I think this movie actually does kind of really shine. Uh, Does anyone have any thoughts on that or any other moments that really stand out? It just makes me
0: wonder, there is such a difference between, like I guess, the first two-thirds and the last third. Dave, I think you're on the money that this is a movie split into five acts, not just three. There's a lot going on here yeah um and it like did they discover that in editing like i'm just this is a bit of a tangent i'm just so curious of like the front half is so loaded with all of these baz Luhrmann things and then the back half is just kind of like a biopic a really well done <laughs> biopic with like a star performer Did they discover that in editing was that in the script like i'm just it's it's just so interesting because when this movie does get out of its own way there's a whole lot of Elvis to enjoy. You get if you're going into this movie wanting to listen to Elvis music and see Elvis, you're getting your money's worth. They have all the hits, so many songs, like it's just wall-to-wall Elvis's discography, which I, I think is great for like a biopic that's gonna cover somebody's whole life and their whole career. Seeing these live performances on camera. I think the spectacle in that way, I think, is really well done of how. You go from the first Hayride show in the 50s to the Vegas Glitz. Uh, I think that each stage of his career um, and the set pieces of his life, especially the really iconic ones, like a 68 comeback special, I think are really well-crafted, well-created. And so the showman part of the actual, just like Elvis doing his thing, I think is what, for me, helped my attention carry through the movie and kind of ignored the weird Tom Hanks in a sweater trying to appease... Uh, sewing machine, corporate people. (laughs) Oh, Santa Claus is coming. Here comes Santa's coming. Oh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Ah. Just letting Austin Butler do his thing. Point point and shoot, build these sets. I think that's where the movie kind of really excels. Did they discover that in editing, or was that in the script? I'm not sure.
3: I think the movie wanted to accomplish this sort of, like, rat-a-tat kind of, like, Uh, rhythmic it's like oh well Elvis like you know rock and roll and rhythm and let's create this sort of sort of kinetic like rhythmic editing vibe to like get uh to connect to kind of the music and it's like yeah it's like okay sure but like this is not an effective way of doing it uh, I will say, like the scenes, the like Beale Street scenes were were fun, and I think that there was a really nice balance of some like kinetic movement, and it felt very musical. You had some sequences of people um, singing, but also dancing and, and things like that. But for the most part, like all the fucking travel cuts, the map, you know, the fucking. When it, car, uh, when it becomes a
1: when it becomes a uh, comic book for like.
3: Four oh minutes. my god like what what is going on all that was horrible i would say some of the more musical numbers with dancers and singers sure uh, i think that's was Lerman like you know doing his Boslerman thing but everything else sucked
1: i think all of those things are Lerman doing his Lerman thing but some of them work and some of them don't yeah i suppose Unless anybody has any real standout thoughts or, or or last scenes that they want to highlight. Well, one that I did want to highlight, though, is um, before we get to the, uh, the real versus real portion, truth versus fiction portion, which, which kind of ties into that. There is the portrayal of Elvis's relationship with his mother, which is strange. Uh, we know them historically to be very close via biographers and uh, peers and family members. But this film's characterization of it is very uh, strange I- in terms of like they're like cheek to cheek having these. Conversations about him going away from her to go on tour. When he is on tour and he first has his like a uh, you know night with uh, a fan, a lady, we see he- his mother standing at the kitchen sink washing dishes and suddenly like stricken, staring out the window, like she can sense that it's happening. Very strange stuff.
0: I feel like the mom was just a really flat character. Like I feel like I never quite was able to engage with why she was this way. The movie has so much to do that. But there's like, Mama, you should stop drinking, and then she just dies. And like, as he's like away, and it's like this weird another Baz Luhrmann like, like I don't know, weird cut scene kind of. I don't know. It's like couldn't really connect with like the mother character or Elvis. Like I get it. It's a really important relationship, of course, and her death means a lot in the Elvis story. I was just like, I don't know. Maybe the movie had just had so much to do that i don't know i just never quite it never quite clicked for me this
1: performance or the role i don't know maybe others feel similar just never quite clicked well there's another real versus real aspect of that before we get to the like meat of that that is part of their relationship i mean uh, she is portrayed in this movie as you know uh pretty much a, a rather seasoned alcoholic uh, somebody that hasn't a problem with alcohol friends and family of uh of his mother Attested that like there was never any point that like they recall like her being like vis like all that visibly drunk like consistently or like smelling alcohol in her breath or anything like that. And Elvis himself, uh, according to friends and family, would be pretty appalled by this presentation and portrayal of his mother in this film.
2: Elvis's dad, I mean, he was basically like a non-character. But I think that he plays like a pretty big part at the end where it's like, are you going to do anything to save your son, Mr. Presley? And then he's like, what does the colonel or the admiral think? Was Hmm. that also like true or was he more present? I don't know.
1: He was installed as a bit of like a, a puppet family head of the company sort of as a foil for the colonel for presley to the the point that it became like sort of a distraction tactic uh and a way of roping in like family obligation to it so it it seems as though uh, according to historical record and most accounts i've found that it was a yet another manipulative move on parker's part uh which i suppose then uh probably brings us to the accuracy of this movie uh, this is a biopic. This is the big Elvis biopic. There have been uh, several Elvis movies. Most of them, like made for TV, or most of them, sort of like uh, setting Elvis as like a secondary character, or a framing device. A lot of things like that. But this is the first real, uh, real take. A real, a real uh, stepping to the plate to make a biopic about Elvis's life. Uh, so it calls into the question: uh, How much uh, is truth, and how much is fiction? Real versus real. Our uh, our theme. And uh, I've got an awful lot of notes to that effect, the first of which being uh, racism and appropriation, something that we've touched on before. So Chuck D of Public Enemy uh, quipped in their 1989 single Fight the Power that, quote, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. You see straight up racist. That sucker was simple and plain. Motherfuck him and John Wayne. Incidentally, I agree with that last part. Uh, the rest, however, is a little bit uh, contested over the years, uh, the question being, was Elvis Presley a racist? There is an off sided and infamous quote attributed to Presley in discussions like these, claiming that he once said, uh, and this, uh, the quote of sorts, uh, the only thing a black man can do for me is buy my records and shine my shoes. Uh, to my knowledge, no one has ever been actually able to source this quote, and it may be apocryphal. Coupled by reports from friends, family, and peers that there was no evidence, in fact, that he actually said that or harbored racist views. That having been said, there's no denying that Elvis built his career largely on appropriating and repackaging black culture and the style of black artists for white audiences. The film really kind of does shy away from and sanitize it by painting it as homage to a community that accepted him as a peer, elevating their art and bringing them into the mainstream. Uh, And it does so by omission. Elvis's black counterparts are never given a voice in the film, reducing them as Jack Hamilton of Slate writes in his article, Elvis is a con, to, quote, props whose primary function is to vouch for Elvis's own mythic racial transcendence. Hamilton continues, quote, the movie's depictions of black music making often feel flagrantly racist, shot after a leering shot of carnal, frenetic ecstasy, while whole traditions like gospel, blues, and R&B are reduced to raw material for Elvis to bring forth to the benighted white masses. The film kind of seems content to undermine the history behind Black musicianship that at best, quote unquote, inspired Elvis, if not provided him material to co-opt. For example, we see a young little Richard in the film make an impact on Elvis with his performance of Tutti Frutti, which through Elvis's eyes is seen as an inspiring flash of what he perceives as a rising culture of new and exciting music. In truth, Richard's Tutti Frutti was a nationwide hit before Elvis ever recorded a single on RCA. It also paints Elvis's relationship with B.B. King as a long and close friendship based solely on a photo of the two performers. In B.B. K- King's autobiography, he makes flattering references to Elvis but makes no allusions to their being close friends. The film also paints Elvis as a social advocate for desegregation and the civil rights movement. Though Elvis made very few public statements on his stance on race relations, one thing that we do know is that during his famed 1970 White House visit with Nixon— He appealed to the president asking to be made an operative for the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs with the intent of infiltrating the Black Panthers, a move consistent with his later in life emphasis on law and order conservatism with a distinctive racial bias. Uh, I'm not comfortable, based on what I know, saying whether or not Elvis himself was a racist. However, I can say with confidence that the film's sanitization and saintly portrayal of the man, while omitting black voices critical to his style and legacy, certainly does the film itself no favors in that department.
0: This goes hard in trying to like connect Elvis with like like the the racial struggles of the fifty. Like, it, it leans really hard into it, which is an interesting choice.
3: And like connecting back to Tom Hanks, it kind of does it ta- it like Forrest Gumps uh, yeah, yeah. in like positioning Elvis in all of these particular uh, like not to mention all of like these series of assassinations that were like you know like like both kennedys and then martin luther king and then malcom like all of these and then it positions elvis as sort of this um kind of vessel through which we like understand his his desire to bring about change and like uh, be the spokesperson for the people and for the ma- and it's like wow. Wait, what? <laughs> what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, like agreed on based on your whole uh assessment, Dave, uh yeah, I, I don't think this movie does any critical thinking about Elvis and his relationship to yeah, the music traditions that he clearly just took from. And it's like the movie could have, there were some moments where you watch Elvis watch a performance uh, of a Black artist and be like, that, that's what I want to do. And there's a in a better movie, it would have taken these moments and like really use them for critique of sort of Elvis's position as a white successful artist being like, yes, I want to do that. Yes, I want to do that. And like use that as a way to critique the music industry but the but the movie doesn't wanna do that or like doesn't give a shit.
1: <laughs> At best, there's yeah, there's the one moment between he and BB King who to hear this movie tell it were best friends. Um <laughs> where he points out that like, you know, I'm af- I'm afraid that what I'm doing is going to get me locked up. And BB King fires back like, "Well, listen, you're a famous white boy. They're not going to lock you up for doing what we do." But that doesn't say anything about how he feels about it.
3: <laughs> yeah, it yes. Uh, it's so passing. It's so fleeting, and it's like it's as if the screenplay was like, "Okay, we acknowledged it. Moving on. <laughs> it's also, like, moving on to this other random shit we're gonna do in this movie." There's a moment at the
2: very beginning where they're listening to Elvis for the first time at like the the carnival or whatever, and they're like, "Yeah, this is, sounds awesome, but like it's never gonna go anywhere." Wait, you? This is a white what? man singing. Let me he's,
1: get it, He's what? <laughs>
2: He's white, right? Like they're trying to say something, but it doesn't fucking work.
1: It never gets there in, in any kind of meaningful and observational way. Which you know, even though this film seems to suggest that uh, Elvis's performance in uh, one performance in Memphis uh, let pretty much led to desegregation. <laughs> that performance in particular in the film is uh, Elvis's lewd performance of the song "Trouble." at that outdoor show in Memphis, which incited a riot, which again, the film seems to suggest led to the end of segregation question mark, uh, and then led to his arrest. Uh, so this ties into his military record, which the film briefly touches on, uh, rather than face the music as it were, uh, he and Parker opted for voluntary military service as penance for the incident. Not only did Elvis not know the song trouble at the time of this concert, because it was written for a movie that he was in a year later, but his performance did not lead to the riot for which he was arrested. In fact, he was uh, not arrested. In truth, uh, it was in 1956 that Elvis was 21 years old, making him eligible for the draft. Parker sought to get ahead of this by writing to the Pentagon, suggesting that he be placed in like you know, the general GI service, while Elvis himself wanted to be placed in special services, which would allow him only a little bit of military training and performing uh, what amounted to USO shows. Uh, the colonel didn't want this because it actually conflicted with his ownership of Elvis's music. If you perform in USO shows, you are not paid, and you surrender the recordings of your performance to the army as far as ownership. So the Parker himself wouldn't make a dime from this, which is why he wasn't interested, and uh, suggested that Elvis be a GI rather than part of special services. That having been said, he did have another agenda with this, Parker's, Uh, that it would kind of win over the public, suggesting that uh, Elvis was an all-American boy, and if he was going to do military service like uh, any other uh, young American man, then he should do it. Uh, This pretty much backfired because Elvis was granted an extension, much to the outrage of the public, to film King Creole. Two years later, in '58, Elvis was sworn in and completed training at Fort Hood, and then served in Germany, where he met his soon-to-be wife, Priscilla. This brings us into uh, the nitty gritty about Elvis's marriage, which is pretty much not touched upon in this film at all. She is sort of suggested to be like, a, in essence, a supportive partner uh, to Elvis, but with very little depth or very little exploration. Uh, so some notes on Elvis's marriage. Elvis's marriage to Priscilla Wagner Presley. Uh, there's another bad faith sanitization within the film. Uh, and Elvis, the pair meet in Germany while Elvis served in 1959, falling for each other to the tune of Can't Help Falling in Love, a song that didn't exist until two years later. Their marriage plays out within the margins of the film until their divorce in the early 70s. The film never makes mention of the fact that when their courtship began in 59, Elvis was 24 years old and Priscilla was 14. They maintained a relationship since they met, which Priscilla claimed wasn't consummated until marriage, a claim that has since been questioned by biographers. Uh, She would visit from Germany uh, and first began taking amphetamines and sleeping pills in order to keep up with Elvis' lifestyle, according to several friends and hangers-on. She moved to Graceland in 63, lured by the promise of marriage. Elvis, however, was more often than not in Hollywood, where he undertook several affairs, including his infamous liaison with Anne-Margaret. Parker added pressure to the situation by urging Elvis to marry Priscilla in compliance with what he called the morality clause of his RCA contract. Alberta, one of Elvis's cooks, once reported finding Elvis sobbing at the thought of marriage, claiming that through his tears, uh, he, quote, didn't have a choice. They were eventually married in 1966. Uh, Priscilla eventually went on to have an affair with Mike Stone, a karate instructor she met at one of Elvis's shows in 72. Uh, in her book, she stated that she, quote, still loved Elvis greatly, but over the next few months, she knew that she would have to make a critical decision regarding her destiny. Following this, there is a report of a specific night within their marriage uh, that Priscilla recounted to members of the press uh, later on in her life. She went on to say that she regretted her use of words in describing the incident, so I won't recount it here out of respect for that because this isn't a tabloid podcast, but suffice it to say... Uh, If you want to dig into it, there are some very dark moments of their marriage that have been uh, committed to the record. The pair uh, separated in 72, but Elvis, still enraged by the knowledge of her affair, urged his friend and bodyguard Red West to inquire about arranging the contract killing of Mike Stone and was ultimately relieved when Elvis recanted, saying, oh, hell, let's just leave it for now. Maybe it's a bit heavy. The following year, their divorce was finalized. Because I'm by no means a relationship counselor or anything like that, and I I, don't know much about these two people personally. And since they also reportedly did share several genuinely loving years of marriage and raising their child, Lisa Marie, I'm not going to definitively weigh in on their dynamic. But suffice it to say these details speak to the sanitization and saintly mythology of a complicated person and performer depicted in this film.
3: The so one thing I would say, yeah, I mean, all that is is really interesting and the fact that the it's interesting that the movie would omit it. I did find it interesting though that the Presley family, Priscilla, Lisa Marie, the Riley Kay, or whatever all of them sort of gave this movie their it's their stamp of approval publicly. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if they were involved in either the production or whether there was an understanding that maybe in not fully fleshing out the problems of this marriage and maybe the vulnerability, like maybe there was some protective reasons why it was sort of glossed over. For storytelling, it seems not like complex and maybe too glossed over. But I also am always fascinated or interested when biopics have sort of some connection to existing family and like what, how that shapes what can and cannot, or what is and what isn't addressed in a particular story. That All that is to say, yeah, when a movie came out, they're like, we love this movie. (laughs) So...
1: Yeah, and to be fair, I'm not trying to like muckrake here. I I, I say this only because I find this to be such a, a an element of the movie and his life and this story that is so pushed to the margins that is worthy of a remark and its sanitization. But I do respect that if there was creative control on the part of the families as far as excluding certain details or not exploring things, then that's well within their rights.
0: I
2: was also surprised that we didn't touch on the fact that she was 14 when they first started getting together, because that feels like something the public has been aware of for a really long time. However, what I will say is that in the movie, when they're in Germany together and they're in that bedroom together, my God, I would absolutely lose my fucking shit if Austin Butler was looking at me like uh, (laughs) how Elvis was looking at Priscilla I was like oh my god and the actress that they had that the she was definitely not 14 in in that scene
3: Uh, you Um, know who she was in what movie she was in our very first scene she was the the daughter in The Visit what no way how
2: about that oh wow um, also, back real back. quick, Lisa Marie and I have the same
1: birthday, so. <laughs> and I wish the family well. All of that having been said.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's. I feel like what's interesting with these, two, you know, the thing about relationship with Priscilla, relationship with race. I feel like they had the vehicle of current of the colonel narrating the story to be a bit of like reflective audience surrogate. Like, I feel like there was some potential there if, if Lerman and company wanted to comment on these issues or make impactful statements or try to like reassess the Elvis story or say that this is from like an idealized perspective. I feel like they had an interesting vehicle and like option to do that. And instead, they just used the kernel in like really weird, non sequitur, distracting ways. Like, I feel Very like they set up ways. this convention that could have. Maybe added layers to this, or set the movie up as we're watching how the media remembers him, or you know how the public wants to remember Elvis. I don't know. there's they set up some conventions that I feel like they just totally ignored just to do the Hollywood sanitized Elvis story.
1: Yeah, and speaking of uh, sanitization to a degree, or or at least as as far as Parker's role, almost a villainous role within this movie, that brings us to the final kind of real versus real uh, note that I have here, which is uh, Presley's addiction and death. In the film, Parker is pretty much entirely saddled with the responsibility of Elvis's story descent into substance abuse, one of the leading causes of his death at only forty two years old. We see Parker urging the use of stimulants to fuel the near comatose Elvis's energetic performances trapped in a cycle of non-consensual uppers and downers to maintain his on-stage persona. Though Parker likely played a role in enabling Elvis's substance abuse, he was far from the only culprit. Elvis's diet was famously poor. Uh, He was seemingly, uh, reportedly a huge fan of deep-fried banana and peanut butter sandwiches, among a lot of other excesses. That, coupled with years of voluntary opiate abuse led by chronic constipation, to alleviate this ailment, Elvis was provided a litany of prescription drugs by personal physician Dr. George Nikotopoulos, aka Dr. Nick. Interestingly enough, this uh, was the origin of the name of beloved sketchy doctor character Dr. Nick in The Simpsons. Hi, everybody! Who went to Hello, up- Dr. Nick! <laughs> who, of course, went to Upstairs Medical College and had the ad 1 800 Doctor! The B is for bargain! So it's really interesting to see the result of the chicken and egg scenario with that as a big Simpsons fan. But to get more to the point, Dr. Nick admittedly prescribed Elvis thousands of doses of various addictive pills he justified as preventing Elvis from seeking similar drugs on the street. He would sometimes even substitute placebos in a strategic effect to regulate Elvis's spiraling addiction. After being acquitted twice for his role in Elvis's death, as well as overprescribing client Jerry Lee Lewis, he was finally stripped of his medical license in 1995. Geneticists claiming to have had uh, DNA, a hair sample of Elvis, uh, found that he was likely suffering from hyperthropic cardiomyopathy, a disease that thickens the walls of the heart, leading to strain on the muscle. This paired with his diet of fatty fried foods, his rampant amphetamine and opiate consumption, high blood pressure, and what appears to have been uh, type 2 diabetes made for a cocktail of compounding factors that led to his fatal heart attack in August of 1977. Uh, All of this is really laid at the feet of the colonel in this movie because he is portrayed sort of as our narrator who is, in a sense, taking responsibility to a degree, taking uh, narrative responsibility for these things, which uh, though Parker seemed to have been manipulating Elvis's career and putting him in very compromising positions as an artist, limiting his tour potential and so on it doesn't seem as though he was the only culprit in Elvis's death by these factors, as though the movie were to suggest.
3: And that's another lazy example of its screenplay. It needed a villain and the easiest way is to just put all complicated impacts of, or like on Elvis's life into one character (laughs) and it's like okay narrative device easy one but like does it make for a good story no
1: is it true no is it
3: true uh, yeah i mean once again i'm fine with a with a movie playing with with fact but it just yeah it's it's a device that just doles the the interesting complicated edges of a movie down
2: I, for one, am fucking pissed we didn't see any of those sandwiches the entire time. I was like, (laughs) I just need one of those. I need to see him eat it. And he (laughs) didn't. And you know what? Honestly, for the best. But me, personally, unsatisfied. Uh,
0: There's, in this movie, a ghost story. There's a scene where uh, Rooney Mara eats a pie for eight minutes. And I was imagining (laughs) something similar. Both Austin Butler just eating this giant sandwich.
3: I knew you were going to fucking bring up a ghost story.
1: One of these days we're going to talk about a fucking movie on the podcast. <laughs> him eat, gratuitously eating a peanut butter and, uh, and banana sandwich uh, deep fried for however long it is in that movie. Maybe like 20 minutes. <laughs> That's a bit of a generous exaggeration, but yeah. There's also the
2: controversy of whether or not he added bacon. That's like the really disgusting bit is did he have that? I don't know.
1: I don't know either. Uh, all of that having been said, I feel as though I'm coming off as a bit of a curmudgeon as regards Elvis. Elvis the guy, not not the movie. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, there are moments of this movie that really illuminate uh, him as a performer through the vector of Butler. Especially when his voice is being plugged into it. The uh, iconic performance of uh, If I Can Dream at the end of the 68 comeback special. Lip-synced by Butler, but actually voiced by Presley, is fantastic. The end of this movie is truly harrowing and gripping when we see Presley himself. Uh, It cuts away from Butler's prosthetics to footage of the actual Elvis Presley performing about six weeks before his death, the song Unchained Melody, sitting down at a piano, obviously uncomfortable if not physically in pain, but delivering an incredible uh, floor-to-ceiling standing ovation performance of the song uh, which is very harrowing and a really, really profound way to end the movie and an incredible performance. I challenge anybody, a fan or not, to watch that performance with its context and not shed a tear because it's it's devastating, but also really inspiring. Um, and all of that kind of leading to my big takeaway of this movie and my read, which I find makes the movie interesting thought-provoking, and perhaps even effective in spite of its ins- its insane level of stylization. And it's barely qualifying as a biopic. And again, I-, I don't think this is what the movie's going for, but this has been my read. After watching it way more times than I should, and I'm very happy I won't have to watch it for a while, having finally plucked from the insanity of this film this takeaway. So for me, uh, this all comes down to something Lorman said. Uh, in his introduction to a behind-the-scenes featurette for the film, Lorman mused, quote, I've always had a profound fascination with American pop culture. What I realized is that I didn't want to make a biopic. He, Elvis, was a gateway into understanding America and pop culture, end quote. With this revelation, the Australian filmmaker may have accidentally and accurately summarized Elvis as a type of biopic subgenre, the transcendent meta-biopic. Inasmuch as much of the film is about Elvis Presley, the performer and icon, it's also about American mythmaking, the way that we view our own history through the lens of exceptionalism. Now, Lerman goes on to explain that to him, Elvis was a vehicle through which he could explore the American cultural landscape of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, a figure that, in his words, quote, happens to be at the crossroads of pop culture in all of these eras. That's all well and good, and in truth is a decent vantage point through which to take in the movie, to a degree. The film does allow us to encounter those eras on the coattails of Elvis's meteoric rise and well-documented fall. But, as we pretty thoroughly covered, it takes extreme liberties when it comes to addressing not only the man himself, but the social forces and seismic cultural shifts within those eras. The gaudy, showy, over-the-top presentation met with historical inaccuracy and omissions makes it feel difficult to get a decent foothold in any of the eras it portrays because the portrayal is always self-indulgent and incomplete. This might be the unintended secret brilliance of Lerman and Co.'s efforts here. And like the film itself, it all comes back to the colonel as our guide and narrator. Colonel Parker walks us through Elvis' story while never claiming responsibility for his downfall and forever taking credit for his success. Parker is center stage, the architect and ringmaster of another person's story. Incidentally, that's Elvis Presley's story, a man who, while obviously a talented and magnetic performer, made himself a central figure within the history of R&B and rock and roll, specifically by repackaging its roots in Black culture. In this way, the film becomes a fractal, a Russian nesting doll of self-aggrandizing and dodging accountability, the very stuff of American myth-making. And the film's style and presentation reflects this. It's a blustery spectacle, a clever, shining lie, or perhaps, most aptly put, a carnival attraction, the kind that renders historical scrutiny secondary to, quote, the feelings that we're not sure we're supposed to enjoy. Whether Lerman... Uh, or the viewer consider Elvis a biopic or a study of the mid 20th century American pop culture zeitgeist or both or neither. One thing is certain it is to a T the Colonel's so-called snow job myth making exceptionalism on unapologetic display.
3: Okay. This is a dissertation right here. It needs to be, it needs to happen. Dave, you're the one to do it. I want to see, I want to see all the Elvis scholars coming together and talking about this movie. You've got you've got the ground, you've got the makings of a of a great dissertation
1: right there. And I don't know that much about Elvis, but I've seen this movie a lot and I think that's the way to watch it. This feels like the the video idea for your YouTube channel,
0: your film analysis YouTube channel, and this is your like 90 minute long Elvis video that gets like 2 million views. <laughs> Make it happen, Dave. I can't,
3: yeah, you, I will you packaged <laughs> it. You summed it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Agreed. You know,
2: Dave, you really made me think of all of the other biopics that we've discussed and we will discuss in the future or just that are out there and how many of them try to create social commentary on American exceptionalism or American culture and whether or not that's fair to the artist and the person the biopic is about. I I didn't really consider that with this movie, but now that you've said it, I'm
1: like, damn. Like, maybe do I want to rewatch it considering that? I don't know. And it by no means justifies its historical inaccuracies and omissions or stylization, but somehow because of the tenacity and insanity of its presentation, self-justifies it? It's so fucking strange.
3: It justifies it if you're if you are ready and willing to go into that realm of discord, like, I feel like, I don't know. I, I still the don't film, know. I
1: would say does not earn that. That's the thing. I know, that is the it lens. I've, I've seen, yeah, no, and theater. it's
3: great. It's great. But I just don't think that it, it is it justified its existence as like, yeah, whatever, you know, Austin Butler is going to fucking win the Oscar. No, he won't win the Oscar. He'll win the golden globe.
1: This will absolutely sweep the Oscars for best costuming. I'm calling it now because the costumes are yeah. fantastic.
3: Oh, Ooh. He, yeah. Ooh, those suit. Yes. His costuming actually was, was awesome. Oh, that pink silk. Yeah.
1: And I can honestly see him being nominated for best actor. Uh, yeah, no, he'll get the nomination,
3: but I don't think he'll win, but golden globe. I don't globe, think so either. I, the, I bet this thing is going to fucking sweep the golden globes.
1: I will say if Lerman is nominated for Best Director at the Oscars, I'll eat my hat. So there's that, that. would be
3: hilarious.
1: <laughs> and that, folks, unless anybody ha- has anything to add, is as much sense as we're going to be able to make of Lerman's literal morphine fueled death fever dream that is the Elvis biopic. Not the movie I was expecting, but a movie that uh, I have pondered way more than it deserves and reached uh at least for me some interesting conclusions about
3: uh, last thing i'll say is my favorite are the youtube videos that are the austin butler's voice before and after filming elvis oh, like how he's stuck
1: to like kind of doing the like he's carried the method thing into interviews In, uh, where he's just like i just made a movie baby i don't know
3: yeah oh it just it just came out of me yeah 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 and then like five years ago he's just like this like california boy <laughs> it's, just, it's pretty funny
1: it will at least make for an interesting entry into uh what might um, what might become the austin butler biopic down the road depending on how his career shakes out so yo that would be really funny And that, folks, has been 2022's uh, Baz Luhrmann film Elvis and our biopic theme, Real versus Real, which we've really enjoyed. We're going to be coming back to you folks soon uh, with another exciting theme. We're going to take on some different material and we're going to see how that goes. But uh, we're so thankful to you for sticking with us as we have explored several different biopics and uh, the ethics, the responsibility and the uh, artistic license of the genre. Uh, we are of course part of a suite of other great podcasts that you can find through the Movie John Podcast Network you can find them at MovieJohn.com or wherever you get your podcasts, some really great stuff out there, and of course we want to thank you, the listener and, and to my co-host, thank you all for indulging me in this this experiment that inspired this theme we'll be seeing you next week, but until then of course, take care, baby wow can you do the have a good whatever in the Elvis voice? Uh, whatever we'll see you later on and songs and words oh my god (laughs) it's amazing oh my god podcast has left the building thank you folks This
0: has been